Okay, please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, known also as the Apocalypse. And last week we closed in verse 11, and I'll read that to you shortly. But since last Sunday, I have been continuing to read this incredible book. And this has to be the most difficult book in the entire Bible to truly understand. I mean, to truly get it down. And I got saved 14 years ago. And I was very blessed to get a good understanding, shall we say, of this book. And yet I'm still a student of scripture. I'm still trying to get a much deeper understanding of this incredible book. So for this morning, I want to just do a very brief recap from what we looked at last Sunday and share some more insights with you all before we get into the verses today. But this book starts with the term, The Revelation of Jesus Christ from chapter 1 verse 1. Paul would say from Galatians chapter 2 how he went up to Jerusalem by the revelation of God and the term revelation means a message or something which was previously withheld like the term mystery something which was explicitly revealed in the New Testament uh, or held back in the Old Testament, revealed in the New Testament. But Galatians 2 1 speaks about how I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And I went up, verse 2, by revelation, same language, and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. I went up to Jerusalem with a Specific message, something which had only been given to me. And that's what John is going to further discuss or outline through the book of Revelation. So when it says from Revelation 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, it is again concerning something which wasn't explicitly revealed to anybody until John the Apostle. You see, Paul would be shown a third heaven and yet he wasn't allowed to tell you what that entailed but when John is shown the third heaven and of course we are now reading his account of the third heaven he is told to write everything that he sees so just keep that in mind if you will and I will further elaborate on that no doubt as we continue through this incredible book from verse 4 you've got this interesting expression From him which is, and which was, and which is to come. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Which is, and which was, and which is to come. Jesus Christ is priest, prophet, and king. The first time he came, he was a prophet. For now, the church age, he is a priest. Very much interceding for us. When he comes back, he comes back as a king. King of kings and lord of lords. Also, priest, prophet, king, you think of the past, the present, and the future. You think of the Old Testament and the New Testament being in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. You think of the earth, the sun, and the moon. And you think of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. From verse 7, the Word of God says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. And I was 
reading that this week, and I was minded of the text from Zechariah. Please turn to Zechariah. And in Zechariah chapter 12, this language is given to us clearly. And in Zechariah chapter 12, we read from verse 10. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. One more time. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. He that has seen the son sees the father. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. Speaking about Israel of course. And shall be in bitterness for him. As one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. When Christ hung on the cross. He died in the place of sinners. And on top of that he displayed the whole concept. The whole glory of the triunity of the Lord. In other words if you were to look at the Lord Jesus Christ. You saw the triunity of the Lord. We know that he was the express image of the Lord. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily was found in him. So when it says here from Zechariah twelve ten, How I will pour upon the house of David, God speaking, and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the eternal city, the spirit of grace and of supplications. There's a picture of redemption on the one hand and a picture of judgment on the other. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. They pierced my hands and my feet. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. A third of Israel is going to be saved during the tribulation. And shall be in bitterness for him all the years of rejecting him. And we call that bittersweets. As one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. My firstborn also found from uh, the book of Colossians. Also from Revelation 1.7, the term how they are going to wail. And that took me back to Micah. If you go to Micah chapter 1, we come across a very startling piece of scripture from Micah chapter 1. Take a look, if you will, at verse 8, please. Therefore, I will wail and howl. I'll go stripped and naked. I'll make a wailing like the dragons. A mourning as the owls. Jesus Christ speaking. I will wail and howl. Partly the first coming. I'll go stripped and naked. He hangs on a cross naked. I will make a wailing like the dragons. Dragons being devils. And mourning as the owls. Here's a vivid picture of devils and owls. In hell. Suffering. But the term I will make a wailing. Reminiscent of Revelation chapter 1 concerning the enemies of the Lord. Go back to Revelation. So therefore you've got Christ coming back on clouds. Those that are on the earth, not the church, are going to see him. Every eye will see him. And they are going to wail. And as they are wailing with absolute horror that the Son of God is coming back to conquer, he too is wailing. In fact, the scripture speaks about almighty God roaring in the sense of anger. A great roar comes from heaven. 
Also from verse 8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Underscores again his deity, and it also shows me that Jesus enjoys the same status and characteristics as Almighty God, simply that he is eternal. From verse 10, it says, How I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, about to herald something quite remarkable. 11, this is where we finished last week, saying, I'm Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Seven churches are going to get this book. And these seven churches were literal seven churches from the first century. And yet these, these churches have a double application. They have a double application, which means this, that what will be addressed to them will be addressed vicariously to you and I. But go to Second Timothy, because I'm still not... Uh, through with the discussion of this being Christ's inspired message to John the Apostle. Second Timothy 3.16 All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished under all good works. Once you have the scripture, you have all that you need which is quite remarkable, but from 16 it says how all scripture, which would include Revelation, also known as the Apocalypse, is given by inspiration of God, which means this, that the Lord breathes onto a sheet of paper and it becomes the word of God. So all scripture is given by inspiration of God, would include the Old Testament, the New Testament, and also the book of Revelation. And as such, it's profitable for doctrine. That's the first purpose for the Bible, for doctrine. Then reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness, that the man of God, not the woman of God, but the man of God, may be perfect, meaning complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So keep those opening thoughts in mind, if you will, and please turn to the book of Revelation, and I may deviate as we go through these verses and hopefully Lord willing conclude Revelation chapter 1 this morning. I started last week with a prayer and I will conclude the prayer now and ask Almighty God to bless this message, to bless his servant, to bless the reading of this book and may it be to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and may it be to the satisfaction of those that are listening. May the interpretation be correct And above all, may Almighty God be blessed and glorified as a result of my reading and trying to interpret this book to the best of my ability. And I ask this and pray for this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's start today's lesson, if we may, from verse 12 and see if we can understand these symbols. 12. And I turned to the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. Son of Man, verse 13, is now 
cited. Clearly, he was mentioned, verse 1, verse 7, verse 11, indirectly, but now the Son of Man has been clearly cited. And yet, take a look at chapter 2.13. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where in Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you as Satan dwelleth. Son of man, son of perdition. Son of man, chapter 1, 13. Son of perdition, chapter 2, verse 13. After Jesus Christ, the son of perdition, known of course as the devil, Satan, is the second most mentioned person in the word of God. And yet he is denied. He is overlooked. He is completely discarded. And as a result, most of the church completely has no idea what they are up against. And it goes back to what I said last Sunday, how far too many people reject and ridicule the book of Revelation, like they do with the book of Genesis. And if you don't take these books literally, you not only rob the Lord of his glory, but you lose out on a great reward. But here, Son of Man, verse 13, has been introduced directly, clearly, explicitly, into the book of Revelation. And yet, Paul never once called Jesus Christ the Son of Man. Because the Son of Man, technically, is a messianic title. The Son of Man pictures Christ as the priest. For now, in heaven, and also at the second coming, of course. Also on top of that, the Son of God pictures him as the king. But one more time, during his first time on the earth, his first arrival, the first coming, if you will, he was prophet, priest, and king. So here, John refers to him as the Son of Man. And verse 13 is very similar to Daniel chapter 9. But verse 12 speaks about how he was turned and being turned. Interesting expression. I saw seven golden candlesticks. You think of the Jewish menorah, which has seven parts to it. And these seven candlesticks are going to be terms for the church. I'll come back to that in a minute. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. So you've got the Son of Man, being Jesus Christ, of course, in the midst of the seven candlesticks. For now, Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father in the third heaven. But on top of that, he's also standing in the midst of the seven candlesticks, being the seven churches, of course. He's clothed, verse 13, with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. This is an explicit description of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, if you go back to the Gospels, you will struggle to find any clear description of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when I look at verses 12 and 13, I see Christ in the third heaven. I see seven golden candlesticks in the third heaven, which are pictures, symbols, types of the church. It keeps in mind also that this book is going to be, for the most part, what takes place in heaven, not on the earth. But I may come back to these verses shortly and further elaborate on these uh, verses and what they are speaking about. Look at verse 14, please. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes was a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burn in a furnace, 
and his voice as a sound of many waters. You think of Niagara Falls, a very beautiful place to visit. But on top of that, in reverse order from 15, his voice as a sound of many waters. You've got people all over the world that pray to Jesus, that seek his help, and they pray to Jesus in their own tongues. And I think this, I think that at the judgment seats of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we the redeemed, we the church arrive, and we speak to the Lord Jesus Christ, we do so probably initially in our own languages. And he speaks back to us in our own languages, of course. Once we pass the judgment seats of the Lord, we go into eternity. And I think we speak in Hebrew to the redeemed. But here, uh, again in reverse order 15, it speaks about his feet like under fine brass. You think of the account back in Daniel, and uh, that account in Daniel. There are two accounts where Daniel's friends are detained and thrown into a furnace of fire. And it speaks about the Son of Man rescuing them. He walks in to that furnace of fire, and verse 15 seems to tally with this. And his feet like under fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And he rescues Daniel's friends, companions, and that is also a picture of faithful Jews in the tribulation who will also be rescued. On top of that, the Son of Man, verse 13, referred to as the angel of the Lord back in Daniel, helps Daniel. Daniel says that this night the angel of the Lord, or an angel of the Lord, stood by me, rescued me, preserved me, picturing once again the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think to myself this, I think that 14 and 15 are picturing the Son of Man, obviously, back in the Old Testament, rescuing Daniel. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar is a type of the Antichrist. And Daniel, as a faithful, righteous Jew, was saved, was rescued, like I say, along with his friends. And the same will be true of the Jews in the Great Tribulation. Those that are saved, of course. But verse 14 uh, the latter part of verse 14 gets cited by the black Hebrew movement. His head and his hairs were white like wool. And they say that this term for wool in verse 14 is only relevant to a black man. Let me say this to you, that Jesus Christ was Caucasian. He wasn't black. And I've known Caucasians, I've known white people that have got dreadlocks. So this word for wool, this term wool, doesn't necessarily mean that Christ was a black man. I don't think he was. I think he was Caucasian. He was a Semite. He was a Jew. And yes, there are black Jews. I understand that. But if you read the Song of Solomon, the clear inference will be that Solomon is referred to as being white and Solomon is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, I take these verses to uh, suggest to me anyway that Christ was white, not black. And it says his hair's were white like wool, denoting the fact that he is sinless, purity, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. They will see right through you. So I don't think you can take this verse from verse 14, or this description from verse 14, and suggest that Christ was a black man. I'm sorry, but he was Caucasian. And that's not a racial remark, that's a fact. And yet the tragedy is, and I'll say this is a quick footnote, that if you have ever come into contact with the nation of Islam, of a black militant movement. They have made great inroads when it comes to getting black people to convert to Islam. And they like to argue that Jesus 
as a Caucasian is only interested in white people, which is ridiculous. Muhammad, if he ever existed, wasn't a black man. So therefore you've got black men converting to Islam in their thousands, especially in British and American jails, thinking that they are part of something special, when in reality they've been deceived. But I won't get too much into that this morning, because I'm almost out of time. But let's move on. I may come back and try and pull these verses together. It's a problem, don't you, when it comes to reading these verses, to try to understand these verses. This is a very figurative book, a very spiritualistic book. And yet don't allegorize these verses. Don't make the mistake that many have made and continue to make. We can't take these verses literal. Verse 16, please. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. In his right hand, seven stars, which are assigned to seven first century churches, which are going to represent all of the churches over the next 2,000 years. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. The scripture, of course, and his countenance was as a sun shineth in his strength. The scripture can heal and it can hurt. That's right. The word of God can heal and it can also hurt. So don't mess with the scripture. Don't be lukewarm and at the same time don't spiritualize it. Don't approach it in the sense that it's not the living word of God. In fact, keep your hand, if you will, in Revelation chapter 1 and go to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49. Uh, like I said last week, when it comes to Revelation, only the Old Testament can really help you understand this piece of scripture. Isaiah 49, look at verse 1 please. Listen, O isles unto me, and hearken ye people from far. The Lord hath called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother, hath he made mention of my name. Now Isaiah is writing his accounts, and yet behind Isaiah is the Lord Jesus Christ, which again is what we call double application. Isaiah is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two, and he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me as a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me, and said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I'll be glorified. God the Father speaking to God the Son. Look at verse 4. Then I said, I have laboured in vain. I spent my strength for naught and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. God the Son speaking to God the Father. And yet Isaiah is also partly pictured here. Verse 5. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be a servant. To bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered Yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. You're going to gather Jacob to the Lord, being Israel. Look at verse 6. So that wasn't enough. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. That's you and I, Gentiles, the church. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord that is faithful. And the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Go back to Revelation. So they get a clear picture of Jesus Christ coming 
as the servant of Israel and how he would be despised. But from verse 2, which is what I'm primarily focusing on, and he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword, a double-edged sword, to heal or hurt. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft in his quiver, hath he hid me. Incredible. But Revelation, go back to Revelation please, and let's try and pull these verses together. Revelation speaks about, in his hand, seven stars, picturing the fact that Christ is omnipotent, and also how his countenance was as a sun shineth in his strength. To take a look at the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not saved, would result in you being destroyed, quite simply. That's why you need to have an imputation. You need to be given Christ's righteousness, otherwise you can't survive. 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I'm the first and the last. I'm he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And of the keys of hell and of death. I fell at his feet as dead, in awe and anguish. And Christ doesn't correct John for doing this because Christ is deity. He says, fear not, I'm the first and the last. And that was mentioned from verse 11. I am the beginning and the end. I'm the whole deal. I'm he that liveth and was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Priest, prophet, king. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. They won't kill me anymore. They won't put me on a cross again. And of the keys of hell and of death. I have the keys of hell and of death. Not the church. Did you notice that? I and I alone have the keys of hell and of death. But I'm still interested with, it, with this term, uh, the first and the last. In fact, go to Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 41, the first and the last. And these are great verses to show the Jehovah's Witnesses just how great Jesus Christ is. Isaiah chapter 41, look at verse 4, please. Who hath wrought and done it? Call the generations from the beginning. I the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. Chapter 44, verse 6, 44, verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Give it verse 8. Fear not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time, and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. Go to chapter 48. 48. Uh, 48. Verse 12. Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he. I'm the first. I also am the last. I'm the first and the last. I am El Alion. I am Jehovah. I am El Gabor. I am Elohim, I am Jesus Christ. That's right, you've got deity in the book of Isaiah, making it clear that there is only one true God, that this one true God is the beginning and the end, how there is no other God, and in the New Testament, that description is applied to Jesus Christ. Quite remarkable. Revelation chapter 1, take a look please at verse 19. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. 
The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. You've got seven stars assigned to seven churches. You've got the candlesticks referred to as the churches. But the mystery, 20 of the seven stars, means something which was previously not revealed to those in the church age. So you've got the seven stars in the Lord's right hand, not his left hand. I love the attention to detail here, which pictures the fact that he is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's got the world in his hands, as they say. And he wants John to put pen to paper and give an account as to what he has seen and what he is about to see. So 20 verses, you've got Jesus Christ giving this message to John. And John will continue on where Paul left off. He is told to write about what he will see in glory. And what he sees initially are seven churches referred to as candlesticks picturing the Jewish menorah and in the midst of these seven churches the son of man very much uh, interceding walking around like the Lord God of the the Bible back in Genesis concerning Adam and Eve how it says the Lord God walked uh, in the garden during the heat of the day and the son of man 13 is clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle almost pitching the high priest Back in the Old Testament, we are told his head and his hairs were white like wool. That would be concerning his hair and his beard, of course. But like I say, you can't read this verse and conclude that Christ is a black man. No, he was Caucasian. His feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. Picturing back in the Old Testament, Daniel, like I say, when he rescued Daniel and his three other friends. Picturing what he would do in the tribulation. In his right hand, seven stars, again, picturing angels which are assigned to the church. So the stars are in his hand. He's in the midst of the seven local churches. He is priest, prophet, and king. In his mouth is a sharp two-edged sword, being the word of God, I believe anyway. I know some people disagree with me on that. And when John sees him, he falls at his feet as dead, because he is in the presence of deity, And Jesus doesn't correct him for that. He says, fear not. I'm the first and the last. I am the entire deal. I am deity. I'm Alpha and Omega. I'm he that liveth. I'm as dead and behold. I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And the keys of hell and of death. Literal keys. Because hell is a literal place. People say, what about letterism, James? Well, let me say this. Yes, there are some verses which we don't want to take literally for different reasons. And yet... If you go back to the Old Testament, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, the Lord sent a cherubim to keep them out. And from memory, that cherubim had a sword, a literal sword, to stop them from going back into the Garden of Eden. So I don't have any concern with taking this verse literally. Of course, keys do denote authority, understand that. But I'm going to retain the view that these are literal keys of hell and of death, which he doesn't delegate to the church he gave the keys to peter to open the kingdom of heaven which he did acts chapter 2 and those keys were given vicariously to the other apostles to allow those to get saved and to come into the church but once the church died or once the apostles died i should say and the church got underway once the scripture was written then the authority goes back to the lord and he has the keys of hell and of death 
19, write the things which thou hast seen up until this point in Revelation, and the things which are, present tense, and the things which shall be hereafter. Probably concerning Revelation chapter 4, and yet John is still being shown future events. He hasn't been taken anywhere yet. He hasn't been transported anywhere. He hasn't been raptured anywhere yet. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, previously unrevealed, previously withheld to anyone up until now, being John, and the seven golden candlesticks. Seven stars being angels, seven candlesticks being the local churches, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Remarkable. But I'm out of time for today, so we will close there. And if necessary, we'll come back over the next few weeks and offer more information to this very symbolic book. But again, don't spiritualize this book. Take this book literally. Take it seriously, because you are blessed for doing so, and you are cursed for not doing so. And I think you've got more than enough for this morning. In fact, I'm over time. So I will close there. And next week, Lord willing, we will start Revelation chapter 2, verse 1.